is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow. No, says the man in Washington. It belongs to the poor. No, says the man. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Keep It Fictional. I'm here with my book friends, Mark, Fiona, Virginia, Corrine, and then me, Gabriel. And we are here to talk about something that I find very interesting. Novelizations. Are you someone who ever goes for a novelization? Are you someone who likes to read the book that something was inspired by? Or maybe the other way around, do you ever look at the book versions of the different media that you really love? I feel like it's not a genre that gets a lot of attention, maybe for fairly good reasons, depending on your opinions, but it is kind of an interesting one. And so I wanted to get into that today. So I have no idea what book books my friends have picked out. And I'm very curious because I also would love if they would tell me what the other media is that's involved, <laughs> because there's a good chance I might not realize if it's a movie or if it's, I don't know, a TV show or something like that. So I'm very curious to see what kind of stuff we have, because there really isn't a genre. This is like a type of book, but at the same time, like it could be, it could be drama, it could be horror, it could be comedy, it could be almost anything. And so I think we're going to have a pretty wide range today. I think I'm going to pass it over to my friend Virginia and see what, what novelization she's got for us. All right. Um, so I have got a novelization of Gabriel's favorite video games. I don't play a lot of games anymore. Someone else does that full time in my house, so I don't need to do that anymore. I watch a lot of it as a result. I listen to a lot of it and I hear about them all the time. So when I was looking for a suggestion, I asked my husband and the first book that he recommended me was, I think, Gabriel's pick for today. And he said that was the best novelization. So go read that. Absolutely. Stay tuned for Gabriel's explanation of that. Other than that, given what I have access to is either the Fallout cookbook, which is quite amazing, or it was this other comics that I've got. So in the end, based on the kind of story that he thinks I like, I have picked the God of War comics. He knows I like a good morally gray anti-hero that does a lot of questionable things that has lots and lots of darkness in it so he figured that this would be my kind of thing um so the god of war comics there's a quite a few of them and this one is written by chris robinson and the artist by tony parker and the color by dan jackson now the god of war is kind of the flagship franchise for playstation it started off in 2005 and there have been 15 games since then and of course, the new game, God of War Ragnarok, comes out next week on November 9th. So it is a timely comic to check out if you want to get back into that world. This is a very short kind of comic. And this series is set as a bit of a prequel to the, I would say, the next stage in the life of Kratos, our protagonist. 
And that story started also in the game that came out in 2018. That is kind of another reason why this character and the series intrigued me is because it is an older protagonist, unlike many of the characters that you can find in an action fantasy games or, or books for that matter. And he has gone through a lot. That poor guy has gone through a lot of stuff. But now he has a family. He has a son. And so there's quite a different priorities that he has in his life now and carrying with all that baggage from the past with him. And I think what happened to him in the past made him even more conscious of what he has to do now and what consequences his actions may have. So he's got all that kind of going on. And, and I find that quite intriguing. And I remember watching the 2018 game, which is set after the comics. And as my husband described it, like what people really like about the game is that you're always following Kratos and even through the cutscenes and even through the loading screen, which is quite different from a lot of games. So you feel very like there's this immediacy. You feel very personal and close to the main character. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. I also remember seeing this kid who's like always like following Kratos around and of course the son of, of him, um, following him around, running ahead. So this is interesting to see that in, in sort of a game um, that is sort of a bit of a pair together. It's got the father and son going on. So I, I, I thought that was interesting. So I decided to check out the comics. So in this series, which like I said, is the prequel to that 2018 game, Kratos has left his old world behind and he's now living in the cold north in ancient Scandinavia with his son Atreus and his wife Faye. He has chosen to kind of isolate his family far, far away from people for a very good reason because of what happened to him in the past. And every day he goes out and he finds himself a challenge. He tries to look for the strongest, the wildest, the most vicious looking beast that he could find then he would go test himself against them. But unlike what you think of, you know, oh, he must be training so that he can like seek if he can in a fight, so he can like, you know, seek if he can win against these like strong, vicious beasts. Well, that's not what he's doing. He's actually trying to, he would just stand there and he will let these bees and creatures attack him. And all he would try to do is he will only defend himself. He will never attack back. And what he's trying to do is he is, working to try to learn to control his rage, his bloodlust. And you don't really get a lot of background into like what happened to him before, but something, you get the sense that something must have happened in the past. He must have lost control and he has probably paid dearly for it. And so that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to learn to control that. So he would just, he would defend himself as much as so he doesn't get killed. But other than that, he won't attack back. Unfortunately, he doesn't succeed. <laughs> frequently like he sometimes let other things control him and so um every day he just go and try to test himself up again and again one day he was out there and he hears and sees this ginormous bear attacking a man and the man is crying out you know in some language he doesn't understand but it's clearly like he's crying out for help and Kratos know that like he has to go help this guy. And to do that, he has to give in to his rage. And so he managed to fight off this bear, kill the bear, and save the guy. But what he doesn't know is that he didn't kill just a bear. He actually killed a member of a bear cult, 
which worship this bear demon. And so sometimes the bear will lend its power to the man and they turn into these bears, these giant bears, and he has killed one of them. So now his family is in danger because they're going to come after him. And part of the story is him trying to learn to, like, of course, trying to learn to, you know, not just to control himself, but also to understand that his son, Atreus, is older now and that maybe his son can protect himself also. He is so worried about him, thinking that his son can take care of himself, that he feels so responsible for him, that he's like, he's always keeping an eye out of him. But this is sort of a story where he has to learn to maybe let his son be and grow up and and learn to protect himself a little bit soon. As mentioned, not a lot of background information was given in the story. Uh, we don't really know what happened to Kratos, but you know that he's not doing well and he's trying to constantly struggle with what happened to him in the past. But I feel like the story gave enough of it to make it interesting enough that you want to go read up on him, which is what I did. Or you can go ask the gamer in your life or come ask Gabriel about it. I'm sure they can tell you all about it. But prior to this series, basically Kratos was a Spartan warrior. So it was more in the Greek mythology world. And like many Greeks, He's a human at first, but he's definitely a pawn in the game for all the gods, you know, and is subject to all their machinations. But it turns out that Kratos is a demigod. He's actually a son of Zeus. But he has pledged his service to Ares, the god of war. However, when Ares tricked him into doing something awful, thinking that, oh, we can finally make Kratos like the ultimate warrior when he can rid himself of all this weakness as a human, it backfires on Eris because Kratos was devastated about what happened. And with his grief, with his rage, he just went on a rampage and he killed all the Greek gods. And that was in the, the previous games before this. And so now, because of that, he has tried to He's he's trying to like learn to control himself as a result, um, so that the past won't happen again. But it's it's continue to haunt him wherever he goes. And so in the 2018 game and the game that is coming out now, he is going to battle some Norse gods with his son Atreus. It's a very short comic, just enough to give you a teaser. I think it's interesting enough to get you to want to either play the games or at least like learn more about Kratos. I think he would actually make a really really good fantasy a novel uh, i think there's some novelizations which i e get my hands on it because i i think like this would be a good fantasy but in the comics itself like i also really like the the colors in the comics it's done in a way where there's definitely a very big contrast between the the quieter times when he is with his son and atreus um you don't see the white fate a lot but you do see atreus in him and and when he's talking to his son everything's very calm it's very like gray very blue sort of like in this cocoa kind of north sort of that background settings but whenever he lose control it's like this red and this orange and it just pops and everything goes like out of control the panels just the way everything's arranged is very chaotic because it endures him getting out of control so I, I quite like the the comics of um the, the look of it too the and the art is quite good so yeah so if you're looking forward to the game that is coming out um you might want to get back into the world of kratos and his son atreus check out this prequel comics is god of wars um, and it's by chris robinson tony parker and dan jackson the colorist all right thank you virginia i don't know if i expected god of war to come out of this episode but i i'm very excited Especially, I think comics are a very common novelization, especially for video games. 
I think if anybody was looking to read a novelization, you were looking through all the sites and trying to figure out what was going on. Half of them were probably video game comics. It seems like people can see how these two genres can kind of work together to tell the story in maybe a different sort of way. So that's really cool. Thank you. All right. And now in the interest of doing someone who probably didn't choose a video game, I'm going to pass it over to Fiona to see what they have for us. Thank you. I didn't choose a video game, so good call. I chose a novelization of Murder, She Wrote. So I am a minor Murder, She Wrote fan, uh, and I know that we have a, a strong fan here. So I will try to do it justice. I actually like I really love the show and Jessica Fletcher is fire, but I just I only started uh, watching it during the pandemic. So it's it's kind of new to me and I haven't made it through the the backlog, but it definitely like holds place, like especially this time of year when it gets all rainy and I just want to cuddle up and watch Jessica be awesome. The conceit of the show is that Jessica Fletcher lives in Cabot Cove. She is a novelist herself. But she also is is a sleuth. And at this point, she's really like a very experienced sleuth, even though she's always like, I guess I could help. She's like way better than, you know, the professionals. And so she then I think she makes like kind of like fictionalizations of her cases is sort of um, my interpretation of it. But then there's so there's also these novels in real life that are written by J.B. Fletcher. So you can pick up those and there are like, like, I really think there's like a hundred of them. Like there's so many. Uh, And I think I'll probably go down that path. But for today's episode, I actually read a YA, which is set in the present. So this show is like from the 80s. It is about Jessica Fletcher's great grand niece by way of, um, by her nephew, like the main character's grandpa. So that's kind of great because he is one of the most reoccurring characters other than the doctor, Seth. And he's just a, I don't know, he's just a time. He's just a cute little button who doesn't know what to do. He's constantly changing girlfriends and constantly changing jobs. And then Jessica swoops in to like to help him out. Uh, So this is about his granddaughter. It takes place in Cabot Cove. Uh, Jessica's mysteries don't always happen in Cabot Cove because, you know, They've only got so many people in the population, like you can't murder them all off. But some of them do happen back home in New England. And this like kind of, you know, it's that uh, happy, close-knit town that has all of this stuff brewing under the surface. So it's exciting that this book actually takes place in Cabot Cove. That is the heart of the book, you know, to go back to Cabot Cove. So the gist is Beatrice named for the B in J.B. Fletcher, is a high school student. And she has moved back to Capco with her dad. She uh, lost her mom when she was a young girl. And she writes a column for this website about murders in Maine. And she's sort of, she's a high school student. She doesn't get paid for it. She's sort of like filler for the website, but it's it's kind of central to her life. She only works on cold cases. So this is something that I, I wondered being not a, like, not a super fan if I was missing things. Like I really would like the idea that they called back to some like some previous show cases, but I wasn't, I wasn't quite sure. I didn't recognize anything. And she has this great friend, Jackson, 
who goes missing. And it actually seems like there are a lot of teens going missing in Cabot Cove right now. So she starts investigating and also writing about it on her website and gets a little bit of a like slap on the wrist because she's only supposed to write about cold cases. It seems that the disappearances do connect to a cold case back in the 80s. And again, I couldn't tell if it was like characters that I should know or not, but to this this wealthy young woman who uh, was murdered and found at a golf club. And as she peels the layer back, she sees that there's actually a connection to this like sort of tyrannical neighborhood association. So after that murder, the rich moms got together and were like, you know, we need our kids to be safe. And they create this neighborhood association that kind of gets out of hand in terms of like surveillance. And they're like kind of like they don't follow the police. They have their own security guards and everything that are kind of like above the police in this like wealthy neighborhood uh, that's very gated and you actually have to like pay to go through. You might do it as like a tourist attraction. So there's definitely something questionable going on there. The night that Jackson, Beatrice's friend, goes missing, she runs into these other kids that are from the prep school, the boarding school up on the hill. And then there's like kind of a bit of a dark academia aspect to it because they're playing this game called tenace. It's a bridge term, basically meaning like in bad faith. So these kids think that B is part of this game where they're supposed to solve clues and and become the new tennis champion. This doesn't really resolve within this book. It's definitely kind of used as a like, okay, we are going to have a next one and this is what this is going to be about. So is this like kind of strange injection of like dark academia that we don't get to see resolve. Uh, but we do get the case with Jackson and the missing teens and the neighborhood association does resolve. and. Uh, it was a fun murder. It it did have that kind of like campy feel, not as low stakes as some of the like murder she wrote feels, even though it's murder, like it's very high stakes. But, you know, Jessica's always on the outside coming in. And B is a really a charming character. Um, something I really appreciated is that mental health was central to the plot. And they did a really good job exploring that in a realistic way that was both drove the plot forward but was also like realistic and even informative so that's also kind of like part of B's character is uh, she's dealing with this grief around her mother but she's very forward thinking about it and she's getting help from her psychiatrist uh, and they and they talk about the experience around that so um, that was something I didn't expect and really appreciated from it. So coming back to actually tying it into Murder, She Wrote, Jessica does show up as kind of like a little helping hand. And that was interesting, but almost like almost made me like, I don't know, like sad. Like, why isn't Jessica taking on the case? And it like talks about her being like kind of like frail and like, you know, she can't she can't move around too much anymore. Oh, no. And of course, with, you know, with the recent death of Jessica Lansbury, rest in peace, wonderful, amazing woman who played Jessica Fletcher. It, it kind of like made me quite sad. And like I said, we do get a cameo from Seth. And there was a little bit of discussion about Cabot Cove that was kind of interesting. Like she talks about them tearing down the police station and how like it's yeah. So like she's like, you know, it doesn't have this like homey feel anymore. It's all like very very sterile and there's plexiglass and and everything so 
that was kind of I appreciated that awareness that we would know exactly what the police station looked like. And it's very different and acknowledging that there would be changes in Cabot Cove. But I think I was really looking for more visual cues like that, because for me, that the names didn't necessarily jog anything. But because it's a show, you know, I know exactly what everything looks like in Cabot Cove and I know where things are in Cabot Cove. So I think I would have appreciated a little bit more of that. As a YA on its own, I think it held up uh, and it could still be fun for people who like suspense and thrillers. You know, One of Us is Lying, pretty much any YA thrillers uh, that you enjoy are sort of like a, a mixture of, of fast paced mystery and then like some social teen social stuff. Uh, and it definitely fit into that. And as a Murder, She Wrote fan, it was fun, um, this idea of, of a later generation still connected to Jessica. But I think I would have liked a little bit more of a nod around that. So if you are a Murder, She Wrote fan and you're looking for for more than just the J.B. Fletchers, or maybe if you're a young and, and burgeoning fan, uh, this could be a fun way to start and then and then go back and watch the Murder, She Wrote, because that's the bottom line. You should watch Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Fiona. That is... Yeah, that's really interesting. So we ha- we have a TV show, we've got a video game going on. And it's definitely one of those questions that I sometimes ask when I see novelizations, whether I would prefer something with the original characters and story or whether I want them to do something different, whether I think it's going to add anything. And there's definitely a hard balance that has to be struck there or you have to really commit to a decision. So maybe in this case, we kind of, we miss we miss our main sleuth. But it seems like it was a fun, it was maybe a fun read other than that. So thank you. I think we will swap, uh, we will switch tracks a little bit. And then we will talk about the question of the hour, which you, dear viewer, may have, may have guessed. Is the movie ever going to be better than the book? Uh, I would say yes, as long as it does something unique that the original work didn't do. So, for example, there was a recent uh, movie adaptation of a Haruki Murakami short story called Drive My Car. Essentially, there was originally just like a 20 or 30 or so page short story that turns into a three hour movie. And it, it was able to do that because they added a lot of different elements that were not present in the original short story. He kind of took the original idea and core of the story and expanded it out into different directions that Murakami didn't take it. So I, I think as long as the... As long as the adaptation kind of has the core idea of the original and then takes in their own direction, then it actually can be better than the original. And I think like that's the key, Mark, is that it's an adaptation. They're fundamentally different mediums. And if you try to just take the book and throw it on the movie without thinking about how you have to use different storytelling methods, I think you'll ultimately be very unsuccessful because it will be so unsatisfying. But if you if you really think about the, the heart of the story, not necessarily all the very pedantic details, take the heart of the story and then translate it into a visual medium, I think you can be successful. I think that there are some movies that 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 are quite frankly better than the books because they're not trying to be the book. They're trying to make a movie. Yeah, I agree. And like, I feel like I might hear some angry words if I tried to argue that like the Lord of the Rings movies or like Pride and Prejudice are better than the original, (laughs) especially with a classic like that, like a chance to kind of reinvent it or reintroduce it. I think like, I don't, I don't think they're better, but I'm very glad they exist. And I think that you can watch them 
independently. Like I'm someone who does love to watch the movie and then read the book. But I think if you want to just watch the movie, in some cases, that's okay. Except for Pride and Prejudice, which you should just read the book. It's so long. (laughs) It's so short. It's so short. It's like a quick 180 pages. It's all fantastic. It flies by. It's like 400 pages, definitely. I don't know what kind of like version you're reading of this book. Are you reading the footnotes? I mean, obviously you have to read the footnotes because footnotes are one of life's true great pleasures, but it's not that long and it clips. It clips. I'm not sure very surprised by these answers. Like, because I was trying to, when after Gabriel asked us this question, I was like, what is the movie that I would rather watch than reading the book? I have zero. I'm actually scared of movie adaptations because they are always disappointing to me. So I don't watch them. I'm just like, no, no, thank you. Um, but there might be one I feel like was at least close to the book, which is the Witcher video game. Not the TV show. I hate the TV show with a passion, but the video game is amazing. So good. That's actually got me into like, I can sit there and just watch Gero and, but, and, but I think as I was thinking about it, the tiebreaker for me and Gabriel would know the tiebreaker for me, why the video game is better than the books is Roach on the Roof. Like, I mean, that doesn't come up in the book, so it has to be better. So I think in that case, the video game is actually better. I'm so excited that this is the first time in person I've ever heard slander for the Witcher TV show, which I agree with. Um, anyway, <laughs> I think it, I I would I, I think I would agree with people for the most part. It's very much like a medium thing, and a, a lot of the time. I think that novels add something different or they're they're trying to add something different, especially if you're working in like a big universe, then sometimes you have the opportunity to tell other stories. But there's also times when the movie is definitely way more known than the book. Doesn't necessarily mean it's better than the book, but the movie holds up so well that you forget there's a book because my friend has read all of Thomas Harris's Red Dragon, Hannibal, Silence of the Lambs stories. But most people are probably thinking of the movies when you're talking about it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. The books really are a kind of a different story. Like he's a little bit of a different character in them. And so there's something that can be said for, I think, stuff like that. Or even I'm a big Les Mis fan. A movie is going to do something very different than a book. Is it going to do it better? Hard to say. Depends. But sometimes there's just too much story in a book and you kind of have to decide whether or not you want to keep all of it or there's strange narrative techniques that are very hard to translate like in hitchhiker's guide or in anything that has like that strong narrator presence sometimes that can be pretty hard so i think it varies a lot it it really i would say that the movie can be better than the book but it depends on which depends on which movie and also which team you are having to try and adapt it from that And so I am going to bring us our next video game book now. I chose the one that was recommended to Virginia. Unfortunately, I chose it very, very early before Virginia could grab it because I knew which one I needed needed to do for this episode because it's definitely a franchise that I love a lot. And it's one that I enjoy in pretty much any format it could come, despite the fact that there never will be a, a movie version of this particular franchise it's been in production for far too long it's never going to happen so is a man not entitled to the sweat of his brow 
No, says the man in Washington. It belongs to the poor. No, says the man in the Vatican. It belongs to God. No, says the man in Moscow. It belongs to everyone. I rejected those answers. Instead, I chose something different. I chose the impossible. I chose Rapture by John Shirley. So those are some of the opening words to the video game Bioshock, which remains my favorite game of all time. And for an episode on novelizations, of course, I was going to choose this one. It's a companion novel to the video game series. And also, it is just a pretty good book. It's not um, it's not the book version of one of the games. This is a book with uh, the same cast of characters, but it tells a different story in the same universe with some overlap. I tend to find that for the novelizations that I've seen, this approach is best. Almost, It almost feels like it's filling in missing scenes for something as opposed to um, trying to rewrite it or trying to provide something that's similar to what the original content was. I tend to prefer something that feels like it's tangentially related, but still works in with the with the rest of the story. So what is Rapture exactly? Well, it's a city. It's a refuge for intellectuals and scientists and artists and billionaires and the social elite. It's a place where they can go to escape the rest of the world. It's a utopia, supposedly. And it's the one that you really can't come back from. This is mostly because it's located at the bottom of the North Atlantic near Iceland. The billionaire who created and funded it, Andrew Ryan, has a strong belief in laissez-faire style capitalism with no government intervention. So. You can see where this is going. Uh, he believed that influences like politics, religion, and the specter of communism, as he was a refugee from uh, Russia around the time of the Russian Revolution. He thought they were kind of scourges on progress, and he wanted to create a place where the most brilliant minds could work without worrying about things like morality or ethics. Does Andrew Ryan sound familiar to you? Does Ayn Rand sound familiar to you? The Bioshock series, the novelization, included is, uh, among any many things, it is a critique of Ayn Rand's political beliefs. Uh, she's known for writing The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. One of the main characters in the Bioshock series is even called Atlas. So there are lots of references to her work throughout it. Ryan is meant to be this, the same character, meant to be Rand. He also has a similar background of fleeing from Russia shortly after the revolution. And this is a series that takes place in the past. It's Technically takes place, uh, the book is in the 1950s before the video games, but Rapture itself is a time capsule from like the Art Nouveau period. It's got tall, ornate windows and crackly records that are playing on megaphones. All the while, you can see out the terrifying glass windows into the bottom of the ocean and just see all of the neon lights from the rest of the city kind of filtering in through the windows. As you might expect, this is a dystopian setting. So the the book has a city that's struggling to function, but the book takes place, and this is sort of one of the interesting parts for me, before the entire place has descended into chaos. So once you're playing in the games, it really is post-apocalyptic down there. But this is Rapture when it was still pretending to function. And so it provides a very different setting and a very different stage for a lot of the characters to interact in. Because when you see them in the game, a lot of these characters are barely clinging on to their sense of self or their sense of place in the world or these empires that they've tried to create at 
and, and have just sort of fallen apart around them. So this is seeing them when they were still trying to make it work. And it provides a really different and really interesting approach to it, especially because the particular narrative style of the video game is very uh, epistolary. It's it's just that you're sort of hearing, for the most part, you're hearing people's essentially audio diaries. And so there are these little snippets of life and you never really have to pick them up for the most part. It's whether or not you happen to come across them. So you actually have to search for them as the player. And so I have obsessively searched for them and I've listened to pretty much all of them. So this was very this was very fun for me because I knew a lot of these characters, but really you could have played these games and never encountered any of the really interesting stories that come along with it. And so I think it's, as a book, it's it's really useful because you get to see what kind of people would have wanted to try and live in a city like this and the way that they have sort of thought about their lives and the way that they've tried to go about it. There is a lot of threads of um, philosophy or politics that come up, but really it's about how to run a place that's meant to reject outside intervention and is also meant to charge you for every service. And that is sort of questionable when you're at the bottom of the ocean and you really don't have access to um, alternatives for a lot of the things that are there. So the concept of somebody having a monopoly on something like oxygen at the bottom of the ocean is incredibly dark, but it's just one of the many services that might have been messed with. So another one of the really interesting questions that comes up and is a big I think was probably my favorite plot line in this book because it has to do with a character I really like was the question of what do you do with criminals in a paradise that shouldn't have them in the first place? And so it becomes a really interesting look both into what you do with them. How do you make it worth it to have these criminals around? Can you use them for something else? And the the particular character, um, Augusta Sinclair, who is the one who runs the prison down in Rapture, is one of the main characters in the second game. And he was my favorite part of the second game. And so I was very interested to see what he was doing here. Honestly, uh, the book might be a little bit hard to get into if you don't already know a lot of these key players or plot points. Definitely when when Fiona was talking before about the idea that reading their book, they were like, oh, there might be a reference to something that I'm not getting and you want it to be there, but maybe you're you're missing it. This one is pretty much a lot of that. You get their stories entirely without having to know who they are in the video game but without for me the context of like seeing a name pop up or mentioning like oh it's just like yeah i was the janitor because you still have to have janitors in paradise or something like that i would hear that and be like oh i remember where i found this i remember where i found this audio diary but it's also scary because you often know what kind of grisly end these characters are going to meet because it happens so much further in the future in this post-apocalyptic world so it expands on these characters and storylines, and it provides insight into what Rapture was like before it fell apart. But it didn't necessarily develop anything new. It just kind of expanded on what was already there. So this is really just a big deleted scene, I would say, in a lot of ways, because um, usually with these minor characters that you meet in the game, you kind of see their beginning and their end a little bit. And so you know what happens to them. And the book didn't really stray from that. It was more just what happened in the middle. So that is Rapture by John Shirley. I would absolutely recommend it. I don't know if I would recommend it as, <laughs> as aggressively if you hadn't played the video game. 
So instead, I will just recommend that you play the video game because you should play the game and then you should read it because uh, Bioshock is an amazing series and I love it a lot. I wanted to give some honorable shout outs to other novelizations because I know they get a bad rap. And these are some of the ones that, depending on what your personal preferences, are actually quite good for what they are. The first one is actually The Revenge of the Sith novelization by Matthew Stover has some really interesting takes on essentially what Anakin was going through, but also his feelings to a lot of things, which I thought was really interesting because it brought in a different way of looking at the same scene and also has some really nice writing. The Pacific Rim novelization, weirdly good. That's by Alex Urban. And some of the Assassin's Creed novelizations are actually not bad. The one with Altair, The Secret Crusade, and the one with Haytham Kenway, uh, Forsaken, are both interesting, mostly because they chose characters that you don't know a lot about. And so they can kind of just do a whole bunch and give you a whole bunch of missing scenes. And so I think that's why they work well. But definitely sci-fi, video games. I think that's the realm of novelization I usually look at, uh, just because I'm curious about Especially once you get into something very action-packed, sometimes there isn't room for kind of sitting in, I think, the emotions or philosophy as much as a book can. And so it's interesting to see what kind of approach the authors might take with the same kind of story. So, all right. For our next pick, I think I will pass it over to Kareen to see what you have for us. Water, earth, fire, air. Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then, everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him the most, he vanished. From 2005 to 2008, Nickelodeon created and ran arguably the greatest animated series of all time. And who's arguing? I'm arguing. It's the greatest show ever made. This children's cartoon touched on war, genocide, imperialism, totalitarianism, mental health, indoctrination, free choice, pacifism, and forgiveness. It has quite possibly the best redemption arc ever written of Prince Zuko. It has tight storytelling. It has Uncle Iroh that I will never stop crying about. It has a song that will break you in two, and it has perhaps the greatest line reading of all time in any show ever, delivered by Dante Basco, when one of the characters said, my girlfriend turned into the moon, and he says, that's rough, buddy. The Avatar universe is a inspired fantasy world where some people have mastery over the four elements, and they are called Benders. They are able to create fire from their hands or fly in the air with the wind. And they are loosely governed by the Avatar, who has all four of these bending abilities, as well as the ability to kind of go Super Saiyan, I guess, when they get really angry. Now, the original Avatar series takes us on the journey of Aang, who is an airbender, the cycle happens is that when one avatar passes away, it goes to one of the other nations in this world. There is the fire nation, the earth nation, the air nation, and the water nation. And the reincarnation goes through all of these four cycles. 
Now, before there was Aang, there is the other iterations of the avatars who sometimes we get a glimpse of their history and a little bit about their journey through the avatar, and sometimes we don't. One that we know a little bit about is Kyoshi. Kyoshi is a stone cold, are we allowed to swear on this? Uh, probably not. She's really cool and fights very good and is very powerful and did a murder of someone who really had it coming. She gives her namesake to the Kyoshi Warriors, who are a group of non-benders who use metal fans and face paint and different techniques to fight and be amazing. So this story centers around that particular avatar, that incarnation of all of these for bending abilities, this person is also kind of like a spiritual leader as well as a political figure. Now, after Karuk from the Water Nation passes away at the young age of 33, his old mentors and allies go on a search to find his next incarnation. However, they've got a bit of a problem. They can't find them. This is an issue because the avatar serves a very important peacekeeping or at least neutral gentle war keeping role in the political system without the avatar nations will start going to war with each other and trying to take over the territory and overstepping their bounds so they are under a bit of pressure to find this new avatar and quite frankly find the new reincarnation of their old friend so, when two of these friends make it to Yokata Port, which is a horrible, dusty, dingy little village on an arid, awful island, they bring a collection of hundreds of toys, and all of the children from the village who display some bending ability go to pick out some objects. The idea is, is that the child will be drawn to the toys or the symbols of, his previous, of their previous incarnation. However, failure after failure ensues, despite all the parents insisting that their child is very special and obviously the Avatar because they're the bestest. And one time, maybe they firebent until a outcast, dirty, dingy, malfed little girl runs into the room and chooses one of the objects out of hundreds lying around the room. However, she runs off before she chooses any others. Intrigued, one of the masters decides to adopt her and bring her in as a servant, a servant to the new avatar that they've definitely found and who is absolutely a legit avatar and not at all a political pawn for someone else. She grows up and grows very fond of Yun, who's the young avatar who is around her age and a very good bender. She observes his training as she is busy being a servant in his palace. And she also becomes friends with Rangi, who is the daughter of the firebending master as well. They all serve at the pleasure of Jianzhu, who is the kind of power behind the throne. He is possibly the most powerful of all of Kuruk's friends. And he is the one who is ensuring that the legacy of the Avatar is correct. Now, all of this seems fine up and until the Avatar Yun is attacked by pirates, at which point Kiyoshi, in a fit of rage and protectiveness, performs a feat of earthbending that is 
quite frankly, impossible. She raises a giant rock out of the ocean to throw it at her enemies, and in that moment, her fate is sealed. Because no one could do that except for the Avatar. And all of the lies that all of these people have been spinning for years are slowly unraveling. She comes to a horrifying realization. She herself is the Avatar, but that does not make her safe. It doesn't make anyone safe, not even the Avatar. When Avatar Yoon is killed in front of her to prove a point, she has to go on the run and complete her training in secret with the help of some bandits from her past. This is the story of Avatar Kyoshi. This is a two-part series by FCE. The first one is The Rise of Kyoshi. It ends on a bit of a cliffhanger, so get ready. Um, it is a YA, definitely YA series. There's a lot more heads flying off than in the original cartoon, which is fine. And I think the real strength of this book is probably the world building. It kind of takes the world from Avatar that you know and love and expands it out to kind of see all the threads of the political machinations of everyone, which I love, into the world that we know when the series starts. So if you are a fan of Avatar, then this is a really great book for you. Um, Avatar has put out amazing uh, comics, a couple of novelizations, and now they're kind of going back to kind of talk about the different incarnations of the Avatar with some actually really great writers. If you don't or haven't seen the Avatar series, shame on you. Shame? Shame? Maybe, okay, let me back that up. Not shame. You have a fantastic three-season se three television series to really look forward to, and it's so good, and you will be moved, and it's wonderful. And I wish I could see it for the first time, but I've seen it about 10 times, so I'm probably fine. But if you haven't seen this series, I don't think these books will have any interest for you. It doesn't make any sense. You're like, oh, I don't care. Why is someone throwing a rock at someone? Like, who cares? What's an avatar? Why? Um, it doesn't spend any time explaining much to you at all. You pretty much have to know what it is before you start. But if you are an avatar fa fan and if you're a fan of Kiyoshi and her um, decisive action taking is what I'm going to say, then you should definitely check out The Rise of Kiyoshi by FCE. All right exciting i didn't expect the avatar so and i didn't i feel like i didn't know there was a ya series so that's kind of interesting thank you kareen all right and i think that brings us to mark seems to be a bit of a theme in this episode that people are doing the novelizations or book versions of franchises that they already are fans of and in my case that will continue because i'll be talking about mobile suit gundam the origin by yoshikazu yasuhiko so this is an adaptation of the original Gundam anime in manga form. And the artist uh, Yasuhiko actually worked on the original Mobile Suit Gundam series as a character designer. And he's been working in anime and manga since the early 1970s. He's returned to the Gundam franchise many times. Just this past year, he directed a new film in the Mobile Suit Gundam universe called Kakaroos Dones Island. Um, which takes place within the timeline of the original series as well, but is essentially just like a little side story that they wrote in because they wanted to make another movie. So I've got to give like a little bit of exposition, unfortunately, for this one, because Gundam is, as many people may know, a very complicated franchise. And if you don't 
if you don't know the Gundam series, uh, I don't tell you this, you're not going to, nothing I was going to say is going to make any sense. So I have to give you, bear with me a little exposition here. In the future, humans have begun space exploration and developed colonies in space on the moon and other celestial bodies. Most of these colonies take the form of large structures that stay in orbit around a planet or some other kind of body that it stays in orbit around. On these colonies, there are human settlements that resemble the cities of Earth, ranging from large, dense cities to more rural and suburban neighborhoods and farmland. And in the course of history, the countries of the Earth have united into one global government known as the Earth Federation. This new era of unity, quote-unquote, under the Earth Federation, uh, space development leads to a new calendar system being adopted known as the Universal Century, or UC, replacing the AD calendar, as this is sort of meant to commemorate a new step in like human history and human progress and that kind of stuff. The Federation has dominion over the Earth and its various, various space colonies, but there is unrest amongst the population of the space colonies who believe they don't have enough autonomy or control over their own lives and economic development, and that the Federation is unruly and like unfairly dictating the development of all their lives and their political system. In particular, there's a colony known officially as Side 3 that has been most vocal in its opposition to the Federation's dominance, has declared itself independent, and has called itself the Principality of Zeon, and is ruled by the Zabi family that installs itself as a ruling monarchy. Zeon takes its name from an assassinated politician philosopher named Zeon Zum Daikun, and Daikun had a political philosophy that essentially stated that venturing into outer space humans would face these monumental challenges that would force them to develop new abilities and ways of relating to each other in order to unite and overcome the sort of vastness and dangers of space. And he called these sort of newly enlightened people new types. Term new types will appear throughout the series and the different Gundam machinations throughout the years in different forms. So it's kind of like this little catch-all term that you'll hear a lot if you ever read or watch a Gundam series. And this sort of somewhat utopian kind of developmental view of the future is more or less co-opted by the Zobbies, who kind of use it to justify and espouse a kind of supremacy of people who live in space, or as they call them, space noids, as being sort of like the vanguard of human development and progress, and thus they are the rightful and legitimate rulers of humanity, essentially. After they develop a new piloted weaponry called Mobus Suits, which is essentially like a human kind of shaped robot thing that you a pilot goes inside of and can control it like the arms and hands, like a body, and space is a giant weaponry machine that moves kind of like a human being. After developing the original mobile suits, Xeon is able to challenge the Earth Federation's kind of military supremacy, because up to this point, as like one world governments or quote unquote, the Federation had dominance over the different uh, military technologies and things like that. And also because the mobile suits can up be operated in outer space and within like a planetary atmosphere, Xeon's able to launch a full-scale war operation against the Earth Federation. And it sort of leads to this larger conflict between the colonies led by Xeon and the Earth Federation. And this is essentially where this story actually starts, right around here, because all of this sort of stuff I've been talking about takes place in the past. And that's kind of where the original anime started. But at least within this manga adaptation, there's an arc in the middle of the series that actually sort of charts all this development and shows it to you rather than just kind of explaining all of it to you through exposition, as I have had to right now. So it's actually a lot more interesting than the way I kind of just put there as this little Cliff Notes bullet point history of the universe, which is actually, I think, one of the main draws for this series is that 
it shows you these things that were only just sort of told to you in the original anime. So it does add a, a new narrative function to it. And you get to see a lot of the backstories of some of the characters in Xeon that you don't really get to see very much of, or it's unclear what their motivations and sort of character traits are that you get to see in this series. So for that reason, it's very interesting in its own right. And so our series starts in the Universal Century year 79 on a colony known as Side 7. And we are introduced to Amaro Ray, a teenager who has very little interest in politics, war, or doing normal teenager things like going to school or hanging out with his friends. What Amaro is really interested in is physics, mechanics, and the robotics projects that his father, a government-employed scientist, is working on. This leads to Amaro staying up all night and sleeping in all day rather than going to school, hanging out with friends, or doing those teenager things that teenagers do these days. This idyllic life of sloth of his is interrupted one day when Zeon invades Side 7, and Side 7 was officially a neutral party in the war, so this comes as a shock to everyone that this is happening, but it's sort of revealed that actually Side 7 is not actually neutral, that they've been helping the Federation government develop a new mobile suit that's called the Gundam. So essentially, being caught up in this little skirmish within the colony, Amaro ends up, by sheer coincidence, getting caught up in this little skirmish between the two sides and is forced to, you know, defend himself because there's this giant robot that happens to be lying in the street that got destroyed by this these mobile suits trying to transport it. So essentially, Amaro, you know, being him, he fumbles his way into the mobile suit and starts to defend the colony against these invading mobile suits. And this serves as like a little trope kind of aspect of like a random teenager who gets caught up in a battle on a space colony or some place in wherever that's sort of become a trope in manga and anime. But as far as I know, this is kind of one of the first to kind of employ that little trope of somehow sort of being caught up in this larger conflict. And essentially having now become part of this conflict, piloting the Gundam and learning about these military secrets, Amuro is essentially swept up into the larger conflict. He's not allowed to leave the Earth Federation's forces. He's essentially forced to conscript into their army as a new pilot of the Gundam. I should probably mention that there's also a, at this point, he encounters another uh, mobile suit pilot from Xeon named Shar Aznabal. It's a very mouthful of a name. <laughs> I can never say it right. But essentially, Shar is kind of a foil of Amro's within Xeon, whereas Amro is kind of this young, idealistic, kind of somewhat immature kind of teenager. He doesn't really know what he wants to do with his life, what his life is going to be like. And now all of a sudden he's thrown into a war and he's kind of going through his teenage angst and whatnot, whereas Shar is much more of a mature beyond his years. He's kind of this uh, realist kind of view of person who sees things in benefit and gain and these kinds of Two character types are sort of contrasted within each other between Amuro and Shar and the Earth Federation and Xeon as part of this larger kind of conflict. It takes place on like a more kind of personal level between these pilots of mobile suits. And that's also another big part of the Gundam kind of franchise is that they have these little mini personal conflicts within the larger war. There's kind of that interpersonal aspect of the conflict rather than just sort of portraying it as like this large scale war between two giant sides. And sort of along the way, we sort of get kinds of action, drama, romance, and all kinds of space and technology views through Yasuhiko's artwork, which is very beautiful. And I just want to say that in this particular edition of the work that the manga is actually published on a special glossy paper in sort of a hardcover format, whereas most manga, you kind of have the 
black and white kind of papery substance. I don't know what you call that paper. I'll just call it standard paper. Whereas this is more of a glossy paper. You kind of get like a little bit of a special feel when you're reading the the book itself as a very high quality kind of publication. Sort of meant to be a special kind of a publication. Also, it's kind of worth noting that the anime came out in the late 1970s. It kind of draws on a lot of the technology or ideas of what space life would look like at the time. Because the original Gundam creator, uh, Yoshiyuki Tamino, was very much into these kinds of conceptual ideas of what space colonization would look like. So, for example, there was something called the 1975 NASA Summer Study, where they sort of got together all these different architects and engineers to sort of kind of imagine what space life would look like, what how it could be designed and things like that. And Tamino was very much into that kind of stuff. So if you look at this series, you'll, you may recognize some of these kinds of conceptual ideas. So if you've ever heard of things like Stanford Taurus or O'Neill Cylinders, these kinds of space engineering concepts, then you may recognize them in this series as well, because it was very much meant to be a kind of realistic kind of view of what space life would look like and sort of has that kind of circa 1970s feel to it. So if you're kind of into that kind of idea of what living in space may look like, from sort of more conceptual and realistic kind of way, then you may also be interested in that aspect of the series. And so if you like actions, action in your sci-fi that incorporates elements of politics, interpersonal drama, and an epic narrative that spans planets and the whole uni known universe of humans, then you may also be interested in, in Gundam The Origin. And also if you've sort of been interested in Gundam before, but didn't really know like what where to start like what's the best one that i should read first um like because there's all these different side stories there's different universes that take place that have different, completely different characters and all these different things then this probably would be like a good first place to start because it's kind of like where it all began and it's an expanded kind of more fleshed out version of that story as well so this would probably be a good place to start all right awesome so we have we had a comic uh, interpretation we had a manga interpretation and then we have two ya versions and then i think mine was technically the only one that was considered adult fiction but we have a variety of different things we pulled from tv shows we pulled from video games we pulled from the other two are also tv shows but animated tv shows of various types and so we have a wide range of things to think about so Maybe if any of them sounded interesting to you, whether that be the novelization, because it's just the sort of story that sounds like something you would enjoy, or maybe you were a fan of one of these properties before and you want to see what the novelization version is like. Hopefully we have some options for you to show that even though it's a genre, it's hard for it to really be a genre because it's a lot of different things and the quality can vary quite a bit. But sometimes it is worth looking into. Depends. Depends on how much you want to know every little detail about all the things that started Gundam. Or how much you want to know where the future of, was it Cabot Cove, is going? Yes. So, all right. Take a look. Thank you for joining us. I hope you guys have a great day. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm -hmm.